The following lecture was delivered at the 15th Annual National Jewish Retreat in Atlanta, Georgia, a project of the Rohr Jewish Learning Institute. We hope you enjoy it, and we encourage you to visit jretreat.com for information on upcoming retreats. Rabbi Yossi New now presents his lecture, Are They Just Making Stuff Up? It's wonderful to be here, and let's get uh, right into it. Are the rabbis just making stuff up? The rabbis seem to have a, uh, a reputation that they take a difficult Torah and make it just more difficult, right? And a strict Torah and make it more strict. A classic example of that would be the law, the prohibition against eating milk and meat. Right, the Torah says you're not allowed to mix milk and meat, and what did the rabbis have to do? Added chicken, and said not only can you not add, add mix milk and meat, but you can't eat chicken either, because biblically speaking, chicken is like fish. Right, it's parav, from a biblical uh, perspective. Then another example would be, especially for Ashkenazim, rice on Pesach. Right, there's nothing chametz about rice. In fact, Sephardic Jews eat rice on Pesach, and yet Jewish law came along, and you know, Pesach is already restrictive enough as, as it is, and then the rabbis had to uh, impose these uh, more restrictions. Uh, if you look at the, in your source sheet, at the very first um, quote, number one, this is the source for this uh, mandate of the rabbis, where it says that they, the men of great assembly, said three things. Be patient in the administration of justice, raise many disciples, and here's the key, and make a fence around the Torah. And so, in order to protect from the violation of biblical law, the rabbis added a layer of restrictions to serve as a buffer. So in the example that we gave before about chicken and meat, because um, culturally, chicken and meat are associated one with the other. So the concern of the rabbis was that if we allow you to eat chicken together with uh, dairy, then you may come uh, to eat meat also. So that is a, a safeguard. It's a safety measure. But what I want to share with you today is that that's perhaps a very narrow view of the role and the function of rabbinic Judaism. Um, you know the joke that, uh, so regarding the prohibition of mixing milk and meat, just as an intro to the joke, so the Torah states three times, you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk, right? That's all the Torah says uh, regarding the prohibition of mixing milk and meat. You shall not cook a, a kid in its mother's milk. So the story goes that Mo God tells Moses that I'm instructing you to convey to the Jewish people that you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. So Moses says, does that mean that we're not allowed to eat cheeseburgers? Moses, you're not listening. I'll repeat it. You shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. So Moses says, oh, does that mean we have to have separate dishes for dairy and for meat? Moses, 
you're not listening to me. I'm going to tell you now for the third time, you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. So Moses says, oh, does that mean we have to wait six hours after we eat uh, meat before we can eat dairy? Moses, you're not listening to a word I'm telling you. Just do what you want. So that's the, uh, that is the perception um, that we have. But the truth is, as I hope to demonstrate today, that there's actually a much broader purpose and mandate to rabbinic Judaism. And it's based on this. If you look at a footnote of, of source number two, this is from the Talmud. Amar Rabbi Hanina. Rabbi Hanina says, Chosamo shalakadosh baruchu hu emes. The seal, or excuse me, the signature of the Holy One, blessed be he, is truth. So God's John Hancock, when God signs a check, how does he sign it? He signs it with the word emet, truth. Now the rabbis point out, if you look at number three, that the word emet comprises of three Hebrew letters, aleph, mem, and taf. And aleph is the first letter of the first word of the Ten Commandments, the word anochi, I am the Lord who took you out of Egypt. That represents biblical law, the five books of Moses. The letter mem is from the word me'emotai, which is the first letter of the first word of the Mishnah. And in fact, the word Mishnah itself, the first letter of the word Mishnah is Mem. And then the letter Taf is the word Tani, which is the first letter of the first word in the Talmud. And in fact, the word Talmud itself begins with the letter Taf. So God's signature, in other words, God's Torah, is a combination of biblical law and rabbinic law. On a Kabbalistic level, it's explained as follows. If you have any familiarity with Kabbalah and Hasidut, you know that there is the concept of ten sefirot, that there are ten divine manifestations of the godly personality. Chachma, Bina, and Dat, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And that's followed by Chesed, and Gevura. Chesed is kindness, and Gevura is might or strength. And the Kabbalah explains that Emet, truth, is a combination of the two, of Chesed and Gevura. How do you arrive at a truthful conclusion? Let's say a judge, when he balances the facts with compassion. That truth is compassionate strength. And in life in general, that's, you know, when the Rambam or Maimonides says that you should always pursue the median path, that's what he's referring to, a balanced life. Not a life of extreme, when you only have chesed, when you only have kindness and you're only being nice, that's not good. You know what you can end up doing? You can end up giving a knife to a little child or, or another uh, 
you know, destructive weapon to a child because the child asked for it and you want to be nice and kind. So if you have uncontrolled kindness where you just no matter what you just respond to anybody's request or need, that, that could be counterproductive. And so to the other extreme, if you're always just strict and only express severity, that also will have very often disastrous results. What we need is the combination of the two. And the truth is that biblical law itself represents the gevura, the might, the strictness of God. Whereas the true function of rabbinic law is to moderate the gevura, the strictness, the severity of biblical law with chesed, with kindness, and there, through the combination of the two, you arrive at emet, at the Torah of truth. Um, the classic example of biblical law, which we'll get to soon, and you can actually you can look at uh, number seven, is where the Torah says, shever tachat shever, ayin tachat ayin, fracture for fracture, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you are to interpret that literally, that means if somebody knocks out your tooth, then you knock their tooth out. Somebody chops your hand off, you chop their hand off. That sounds pretty severe. Imagine, I mean, there are some places in the world that have operated that way, but we know that they are very cruel societies. Historically, within the Jewish people and the Jewish nation, we've had the Sadducees and the Pharisees. In Hebrew, the Tzedukim and the Perushim. And the Sadducees were literalists. And they did interpret the Torah in this literal, strict form. Another example of the Sadducees. The Sadducees, where the Torah says, you should not light a fire in your homes on Shabbat. They took that literally to mean that there cannot be any light burning in your home on Shabbat. They would sit in the dark. By the way, just parenthetically, that's where the tradition of cholent, anyone know what cholent is? The hot dish that we eat Shabbos day? The reason why we have, or the reason that this custom to have cholent, to have a hot stew on Shabbos day developed is, be, is to, was to counteract the Sadducees and to show how wrong they were. That, yes, as long as the food was warmed up and heated up before Shabbos, you can enjoy hot food on Shabbat. And we made a point of having and eating and enjoying hot food on Shabbat. One of the seven rabbinic mitzvot is to light Shabbat candles. And the rabbis introduced that so that we shouldn't sit in the dark, like the Sadducees did. They sat in the dark. So we made a mitzvah out of lighting the Shabbat candles in order to modify and in order to ensure that we do not interpret biblical law in its most strictest and literal form. But we give to it what you could call a human face. 
going back to the reputation of the rabbis, you know, that they, you know, they're chomping at the bit, you know, looking for uh, opportunities to make our lives miserable, imposing all of these rules and restrictions. Do you know that in our history, the rabbis only introduced seven official mitzvot? When I say seven official mitzvot, there are only seven rabbinic mitzvot where we make a bracha. And we make the blessing as if it was commanded by God. Like, before we light the Shabbat candles, we say, Baruch Hashem, blessed are you, Lord, who commanded us to light the Shabbat candles. And you can see the list in number five of the uh, handout. Now, to me, that's absolutely amazing. It's actually very timely because it's in this week's Torah portion, in the portion of Shoftim, where the Torah, where God, gives the power to the rabbis. And you know what kind of, you know how the saying goes, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely? We know that's to be a, certainly a political truth. The Torah gives the rabbis absolute power. So much so, so the Torah says that even if they tell you that left is right and right is left, you should listen to them. That's in this week's portion, the way Rashi explains it. And yet, with this absolute power in our entire history, they only introduced seven mitzvot. You know how many laws the US Congress has uh, introduced and enacted in, uh, over the last couple, couple hundred years? In the hundreds. And here, in, our, in the millennia, because the function and the role of the rabbis was not to make our life miserable. Yes, one dimension of their mandate was to protect biblical law and to create a fence out of the law where they saw it necessary. You know, even, by the way, just how do you, how do you, you know when you go to a museum or you go to an art gallery, how do you know which is the most expensive or the rarest, uh, you know, uh, dis, uh, object? on display. How do you know? Well, it's behind a glass, or they put a rope, ride with a rope around it. That's how you know how valuable it is. And that's how the rabbis saw their role, even in terms of making a, 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 a fence around the Torah. It's only that we should appreciate how special and how valuable it is. But beyond that, the primary function of rabbinic law is to give a human face to moderate biblical law. I'll explain soon why biblical law by design is more severe and more strict and why wasn't it just incorporated? Why wasn't rabbinic law just incorporated in biblical law? And why didn't the Torah just spill out clearly that for example, in the case of an eye for an eye, say that the value of an eye for the eye, the value of a hand for a hand. Because look at uh, uh, source number eight. Ravashi said that the fact that one who injures another pays monetary restitution is derived from a verbal analogy of the word for, which if you look at, go back to number six, where we have 
The Rabbi Shmuel said the Torah is expounded through 13 methods, and method number two is a clarification based on identical words or terms in the biblical text, and you have the word for, which is the Hebrew word of tachat, as it is written with regard to injuries caused to people, from the word for, or the Hebrew word tachat, as is written with regard to an ox that gored another ox. Now certainly if, a, if one person's ox gored another person's ox, the owner is not put to death. Obviously, and the Torah says there clearly and explicitly that the owner of the, of the ox that gored has to pay the, uh, the value of the other person's, of the victim's ox. And so using this method, the rabbis derive that we are not to take it literally, but rather it means monetary compensation. So this is just but one example but throughout the Talmud, the primary role and the primary function of the rabbis is to, as I said, to moderate biblical law. When you read biblical law, it looks like a, it seems very violent. And that, you know, biblical law seems like a bloodbath. And that's why we have, if you go to source number nine, one of the most famous Mishnahs. It says, a Sanhedrin, right? Because if you read biblical law, every time, every wrong move you make, you're going to be stoned to death, right? You violate the Shabbos, you're going to be stoned to death. You do this, you, and you, you know, it seems extremely violent and severe. But look what the, the Mishnah says. A Sanhedrin that executes a transgressor once in seven years is characterized as a destructive or bloodthirsty tribunal. Since the Sanhedrin would subject the testimony to exacting scrutiny, it was extremely rare for a defendant to be executed. Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, this categorization applies to a Sanhedrin that executes a transgressor once in 70 years. Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Akiva say, if we had been members of the Sanhedrin, we would have conducted trials in a manner whereby no person would have ever been executed. That, my friends, is rabbinic law. And that is the primary function of rabbinic law. To moderate, to soften biblical law. Now, it's not, God forbid, that we have two Torahs and that God had one intention and the rabbis had another. It's not meant that way at all. The rabbinic law, as I mentioned earlier, was mandated by the Torah itself. But now the question that I want to explore with you is, why didn't biblical law just include rabbinic law? You know, kill two birds with one stone. Why do we have to have biblical law and rabbinic law separately? Why, this example that we gave before, why doesn't the Torah just simply say that, the, um, the, that when a hand for a hand, eye for an eye, is, is, is monetary compensation? Why does the Torah phrase it and present it in a way where it's, it, it comes across and it seems to be literal, and then you have the Sadducees who actually interpreted it that way, Why not have it fully integrated? Why is it separated into biblical law and rabbinic law? 
So let me, I'm going to use, to explain this point, I want to go to the very first pasuk in the Torah. If you look at uh, num source number 10. Um, so you know, in the, the very first verse of the Torah is Bereshit, bara Elohim, et ha-shamayim In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And throughout the entire first chapter of creation, the name Elohim is used. Correct? Then, in the second paragraph of the Torah, in the second chapter, it introduces the name Hashem, Adoi Dash Nai. I don't want to say God's name uh, in, when it's not in prayer. And we know that these two names represent different dimensions of the divine personality. Elohim represents the God of Gevura, power, strict justice. In fact, the word Elohim is used elsewhere in the Torah to even describe human judges. And the name Hashem, the Yud K Vav K, that's the name of God that describes his kindness and his compassion. And look what Rashi says. Rashi says, it does not state Bara Hashem, the Lord, the merciful one, the Chesed, the God of kindness created, because at first God intended to create the world to be placed under the attribute rule of strict justice. But he realized that the world could not thus endure and therefore gave precedence to divine mercy, allying it with divine justice. And it's for this that what is written in the second paragraph in the day that Lord God, Hashem Elohim, made earth and heaven. Now, you know, earlier at the crossfire, I don't know if any of you we were talking about whether God was perfect or not perfect, right? But, you know, for all practical purposes, we believe that God is perfect. So what does it mean? You know, it sounds like, yeah, that, you know, God went through trial and error. That's what it sounds like. What does that mean? That God first thought to create in the world, but then, oh, realized, uh-oh, I made a mistake. The world, and therefore, he changed the way that he created the world. So I think what the uh, Torah here is doing is based on this Mishnah, which is uh, source number 12. Famously, where it says, Rabbi Tarfon used to say, Lo alecha hamlacha ligmor, it is not your duty to finish the work. Velo ata ben chorin libatel mimena, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it, or other translations have it, to desist from trying. What does that mean? What that really means is that we should strive for perfection, even though we know we'll never reach it. There's a famous, um, a I love this uh, quote from a, a famous American uh, poet, Robert Browning, may your, um, may your reach always exceed your grasp. Right? We should never settle for mediocrity. You know, uh, to give a more mundane example, when Babe Ruth, the greatest baseball player, you know, went up to the plate, you know what he thought every time he went up? Home run, right? No player, baseball player, should, well, you know what? I know my average is going to be 300 or 285. So uh, next time I get up, I go up to the plate, I'm just going to go intentionally out. Because you know why? 
because I'm, it's not going to affect my average at the end in any case. Do you know what will happen to that guy? Be, he'll be booted off the team. Every time you go up there, you've got to go up, get a hit to succeed. And so too, in life, what Hashem is saying. You see, the system of justice on paper is a perfect system. Imagine you live black and white. When you do the right thing, you'll be rewarded. When you do the wrong thing, you'll be punished. Fairly, right? On paper, that sounds perfect. If you presented that to a person who actually hadn't experienced life yet, they would say, oh, I can handle that. That sounds fair. That sounds right. That sounds perfect. But you know what it doesn't take into consideration? <laughs> Human beings and our shortcomings and our failings and our idiosyncrasies and all of our mishugas. It doesn't factor in any of that. And you know what we need for that? A hefty dosage of chesed, of kindness, of mercy. But we should not take advantage of that. As the Mishnah also famously says, kol anyone who says, I'm going to sin now and then I'll repent later. The Mishnah says, lo speak in biyado. This is not, there's no guarantee for teshuva. Your attitude is you have to strive to be perfect. That's why before we are born, and those of you that have studied the Tanya, the first chapter of the Tanya, where um, it quotes the Talmud that says that before we are born, an oath is administered to all of us, tehit tzaddik, be righteous, be good. That's what we have to strive for. Are we going to be Achieve? Not necessarily, and it doesn't matter. To quote a great contemporary scholar, it's the climb. <laughs> you know who that's from? I'm embarrassed to say. Okay. Yes, I said, a, I thank you very much. I said a great modern philosopher, didn't I? Right? It's the journey. It's the climb. That what counts. But we have to strive for perfection. Because if we don't strive for perfection, then we're going to settle for less than we could have been. We have to, the only way that we can maximize and realize our potential is by striving for perfection. And Gevura, Midat Adin, God's attribute of justice, represents that. That's, by the way, the the, um, the, the, uh, the school of Shammai. But the, right, the school of Shammai was Gevura. We don't follow Shammai yet. It says when Mashiach will come, we will follow the rulings of Shammai because then we'll be able to handle perfection. So in the first chapter of Bereshit, God tells us what we should strive for, what we ought to be, what our goal should be. Our goal should be to have a relationship with Elohim, a relationship with God that is fair and, and just, rewarded when you do the right thing, punished when you do the wrong thing, black and white. But in the second chapter, Hashem modifies that. He moderates that. He softens that by not just introducing, but as the Rashi says, by giving precedence, mentioning the name Hashem before the name Elohim. 
because we need a whole lot more mercy and kindness than severity and strict justice. It's not even 50-50. It's a lot of kindness with a little severity. And that's really the main function of rabbinic law and why they are separated. Biblical law is telling what our mindset should be. You know what you deserve when you chop somebody's hand off? What do you, I mean, logically, what do you deserve? If you, you know, if you uh, took away somebody's eyesight, what do you think, what do you deserve? What would, what would logic dictate? That you should lose yours. Doesn't logic dictate that? That sounds fair, that sounds logical, it sounds just. But in general, we should strive for the perfection, for the strict, absolute standards that biblical law commands. But in reality, yes, it is softened, it is moderated by rabbinic law because rabbinic law takes into consideration the actual human condition. But never, ever should we use that as an excuse to not strive for perfection. Because then we'll be settling for mediocrity or even less. I just want to um, conclude and then allow for some questions. The famous statement from the rabbis, this is number 11. Tanu Rabbanan, the rabbis taught, Le'olam tehei smol docha v'yemin mekarevet. Always have the left hand drive sinners away and the right draw them near so that the sinner will not totally despair of atonement. So here the rabbis are telling us to use your left hand for gevurah, for severity, for discipline, and use your right hand for love. Now, this is going to be a little strange coming for me because I happen to be a lefty, but, <laughs> but most people are right-handed, which is your stronger hand. And so the mission is saying that your stronger hand your right hand should be used for chesed, for kindness. Your weaker hand, your left hand, for to repel, to discipline. And how, and that's why biblical law is so concise, whereas rabbinic law, which is the chesed, which is the kindness, which is the softening, of biblical law is so expansive. And that's why in practice, in actuality, we follow rabbinic law, because rabbinic law represents the dominance of chesed, of kindness, whereas biblical law represents the absolute standards. And yes, when we discipline a child, the child needs to know to a certain degree that he or she has failed and needs to know that more is expected of them. But still, even when you are disciplining a child 
or if it's even a child, a, you, a, a, an employee, whoever it is, whatever in human relation, whatever interpersonal relationship, even when you're in a position where you have to discipline, where you have to criticize, you have to make sure that the criticism is weaker than the love and the compassion that you show that person. You know, I remember reading from, um, from Rabbi Tversky. He has a book called From Generation to Generation. Anybody read, uh, anybody read that book? A wonderful book of stories um, that he's, he shares from his childhood. And in that book he says that um, when, he, when he was a child, whenever he or his siblings misbehaved, the way that the, his father would, um, would you know, discipline them, he would say to them, Ispasnisht. That's Yiddish. What that literally means, this is beneath you. You're better than this. You know, when you say that to somebody, that's using, that's the criticism is softer than the compliment. That's when it comes across that the right hand is complimenting, the right hand is showing love, the right hand is showing belief in that person. And yes, like I said, you know, when somebody does something wrong, you know, there's, there, there's, you know, there's going to be, um, there's a price to pay to a certain degree. There are ramifications of that, but that always has to be in the left hand. And if we had a, we had a society that operated like that, it would be a much better place. So, just in conclusion, I hope I've been able to uh, successfully convey to you that. The rabbis, number one, did not in any way abuse, and it's, and, and, and it's historical, folks, how the significance that even though this is unprecedented, that the rabbis were given absolute power and they didn't abuse it. It's amazing. Think about that. It's absolutely amazing if you think about that. Seven in thousands of years, seven mitzvot. And even if you, I want to go back to those mitzvot for a minute. Most of them are in our best interest to make life better for us. Okay, wash wash your hands before eating. That's a good thing to do. You know, wash your hands before you eat food. You know, make a blessing before you eat. Okay. You know, the Torah says biblically you would be required to make a blessing after we eat. The rabbi said, you know what? You know, don't just thank God, but ask God for permission because it belongs to Him. Okay. Uh, An eruv on Shabbat. You know what that does? It makes life easier because according to biblical law. You're not allowed to leave your house on Shabbat. The Sadducees didn't leave the house. Not only did they sit in the dark, they sat in their house because the Torah says you shouldn't leave, right? And what did the rabbis do? The rabbis made an Eruv so that you could travel from one town to another. Or they could, right? They made, the Eruv made things easier. Like I mentioned before, Shabbat candles made life easier. So instead of sitting in the dark, you, could, you sat in the room and you ate your food with, with a light on. And you know what? Eat, have you ever eaten in the dark? You don't enjoy it as much as when you eat food and you can see what you eat. It's part of the pleasure of eating is seeing. That's why, by the way, why the people complained about the manna. Why did the people complain about the manna so much? It could taste like whatever you wanted, right? If you wanted to taste like a burger, it tasted like a burger. If you wanted to taste like sushi, it tasted like sushi. Like who wouldn't? Like why would they complain? You know why? Because it always looked the same. It never looked like a burger, and it never looked like sushi. It always looked the same. They didn't have the enjoyment, the pleasure of seeing what they're eating. So the rabbi said, we want to give you pleasure. See what you're eating. Light a Shabbat candle. And then Purim and Hanukkah commemorate, you know, 
uh, events in our history when we, when, you know, when we were, our lives were threatened and we were saved. That's all, think about it. That's all the rabbis officially did. That's amazing. Everything else they did, as we mentioned before, certain safety measures, that, that, yes, but their primary function was this and to modify biblical law to make it practical and to infuse it with chesed, with kindness, and with compassion. And with that, I'll open up the floor. If anybody has a, a question, I'd be happy to... Uh, uh, well, you, can you ask your question again? You, I think I re actually I, I remember your question. Your question was about the final blessing of the Birkat Hamazon. Okay, so the, you're correct. The first three blessings, as I just mentioned, benching after um, after davening. I mean, sorry, after eating is a biblical requirement, and the first three blessings have their sources in the Torah. The, you know, the blessing for food, which is for the manna and, the, and for the land, and uh, then for Jerusalem. The last, the fourth blessing is just to, the rabbis had an opportunity to thank God for a time in our history during, if you after the destruction of the second temple, um, when Bar Kokhba, are you familiar with Bar Kokhba, led this revolt and, uh, in Beitar, and um, literally um, tens of thousands, if not more, Jews were killed in this failed, uh, in this failed effort, and the Romans did not allow the Jews uh, to bury their dead for a for an extended period of time. And the miracle, the Talmud says that a miracle occurred and that two things happened. Number one, that the, the bodies did not decompose at all during this extended period, it was months or so, or years even possibly, I don't remember exactly, but it was an extended period of time that miraculously the bodies did not decompose. And then eventually they were given permission to bury the dead and in to commemorate and to give praise to Hashem for those miracles, the rabbis decided to add a blessing at the end of the Birkat Hamazon, which is called Hatov Vahametiv, who does good, who is good and does good, and the two words Hatov Vahametiv commemorate those two miracles. One miracle that the bodies didn't, didn't, did not decompose, and the other miracle that eventually they were given permission to bury the dead. So that's different. Yes? How, if I borrow money from you, uh, I'm free of the obligation to repay after seven years. How does the rabbinic change in that soften Torah law? Okay, so I'm going to—I'll well, give you this, uh, a, a, a different example. All right, Jewish law says that you're not allowed to lend money to a Jew on interest. Right, that's a better example. Right, I see you from your reaction. You like that, right? So Jewish law says now, you know what the rabbis understood from that? That it sounds good on paper, right? But to the because Jews are not going to lend money to Jews. Why should I lend money to a Jew? if I can lend it to a non-Jew and charge interest. So the rabbis introduced a concept called heter iska, and they created a document and reconstructed the whole concept of a loan, that instead of being a loan, it's an investment with profit sharing, basically. And that way, they enabled a Jew to be able to lend money to a non-Jew. So that's a perfect example also of how the rabbis came along and with their ingenuity and creativity softened a law that was harsh because the, practically speaking, the law that you cannot lend money to a Jew on interest backfired if you want. But we know why biblical law did that. You know why biblical law did that? Because hopefully, hopefully, 
if your brother needed, your actual blood brother, your biological brother or sister or family member needed a loan, hopefully you wouldn't charge him interest, right? I would hope so. And my brother... Anyway, so, right, hopefully, you know, in the family, you lend money, you're not going to charge interest. That would, it would, you know, it would be almost immoral. So that's the standard. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That is the standard. That's the hope that you treat a, your a fellow Jew like your biological brother. That's the hope. You know, it reminds me of a story. There was once a Hasidic Rebbe. I forget which Rebbe he was, his name was. And his son was very, very sick, extremely sick. It was like a touch and go. And miraculously, his son recovered. And he made, which is the tradition, the sudat hoda'ah, he made a Thanksgiving meal because his son had re uh, 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 recovered from this life-threatening sickness. And at this su'udah, at this Thanksgiving meal, the Rebbe started crying. And it wasn't tears of joy. And he was asked, you know, like, why are you crying? This is such a happy occasion. Your son, Baruch Hashem, your son is healthy again. He said, I'm crying because I realize that I am lacking in the mitzvah of love thy neighbor as thyself, of Avat Yisrael, because I realize I wouldn't be as happy if it was somebody else's child. Now that's pretty impressive that he even thought about that. Right? But he realized that he was lacking. That's the goal. The goal is you should strive conceptually to reach that level where you treat every fellow Jew the same as your biological family. Practically speaking, come on. The rabbi said, let's get real. You know what's going to happen. Jews are going to be cut out of getting loans. So therefore they introduced that what's called that heter isker that allows practically, but at the same time, like I said before, and that's my whole thesis, so to speak, is that we should always strive for that level, even though we know we'll never actually reach it. Yes? So when we're saying associate with Belarus, this seems kind of like a novel explanation. Well, that's, no, that, I say that's, I'm not, that's a small part. I say that if you just, well, my point is that if you just view that and that's the sole function of the rabbis, then you're having a very narrow understanding. That is part of their function to protect the law. But my point is there's much more than that. And the more overriding mandate of the rabbis is what I've described here today. There's about more kind of personal things that one is not allowed to do on Shabbos, like take a shower brushing teeth and things like that. <coughs> How is that more chesed? How is that less? Okay, so, look, first of all, the, the, the rabbis can't change biblical law. They can modify it and interpret it, but they can't change it, okay? And so the, the, that is based on biblical law. Now, where, it's, where rabbinic law comes in is like, for example, if somebody's sick, or something like that, and they, then you can give them a bath, you can warm up f food for them, and stuff like that. But those are all like taking a shower or you know using hot water. That's all based on clear biblical law. That's one of the 39 activities that are forbidden on, on the Shabbat. And by the way, who said you can't brush your teeth? S see, me, see me later. Okay. Yeah, so that's what I'm asking about. Oh, that's it, but yeah, look. You can't take a cold shower either. I mean, it's... Uh... Well, technically, because the problem with the cold shower is, again, 
because you know the way the faucets work and stuff like that. And it's also there's a concept that showering is supposed to be in preparation for Shabbat. You know what I mean? You, you know, there's there's certain things. You know, when you're sh showering, you, you don't shower at the wedding. You don't get dressed at the wedding. You get dressed before the wedding. You imagine, ah, oh, in the middle, I need a shower now. People will tell you that's inappropriate. You're supposed to be celebrating, not preparing. And so Shabbat, we're supposed to be celebrating. And whereas what you're describing are all uh, preparatory acts for that. Well, what about when you have like Yom Tovim straight after Shabbos? So you have three days. Uh, so, well, Yom has different rules on Shabbos. You need to speak to your local rabbi. And if you don't have one, I'll give you my number. You can call me. You know, you, I tell you what your questions remind me of. I've always, you know, I always tell people, you know, when they have a, a mishap in the kitchen, right, and they're afraid to call the rabbi because they think the rabbi's going to tell them you have to burn down the whole kitchen, right? <laughs> I am not, I, I know what the rabbi's going to tell me. He's going to tell me I have to burn down, I have to get a new dishwasher, I have to get a new up. I'm telling you, I've, I've been a rabbi for uh, close to 40 years. Nine times out of 10, I would actually say 9.9 .9 times out of 10. You know, unless, you know, you cook milk and meat, you know, like, a, but in the, the normal mishaps with a spoon, with a this and with that, that take place in the kitchen, nine times out of ten, when you think that you have to, you know, throw everything out and who knows what and, and bring in a blowtorch and who knows what, the rabbi will give you a simple solution, nine times out of ten. I guarantee you that. And the reason for that is for what I just spoke about today. Yeah. Someone was telling me there's a rule on which shoe you have to put on first? That is true. So, let, so he, let, let me, that's a great, so Jewish, yes, more, yes, Jewish law says like this. It's actually based on what we're just talking about now. Because Jew, this verse that says you should always prioritize the right, use the right hand for chesed, right, for kindness, because that's your stronger hand. Based on that, Jewish law says that whenever possible, you should give precedence to the right over the left. So, for example, if you're putting on your shoes, put on your right shoe before your left shoe, right? Or even when you're putting your pants on, put in your right leg before your left leg, put your hand through your, your arm through your right sleeve before your left sleeve. Now, but that's not burdensome, folks. You're gonna have to end up putting your both arms through your sleeves. What it gives you is an opportunity for mindfulness. That while you're engaged in this mundane, routine act of putting your clothes on, you're reminded of this important value, that kindness should always be more dominant than severity. Now, why do we tie the left shoe first? So it says you put your right shoe on, then your left shoe, you tie your left shoe before your right shoe, and Jewish law says the reason why you tie your left shoe is because, although in general we give precedence to the right, however, there's the mitzvah of tefillin, where the Torah says you should tie the tefillin on your left arm. So tying or making knots is associated with the left, and that reminds us of the mitzvah of tefillin. And so much of, of uh, rabbinic law and custom is not actually making us, do, making us do things that we don't want to do or that we wouldn't otherwise do. These are ordinary things that we are doing in any case, but you know what? Do it with a mindfulness. Do it with a sense of purpose. Elevate it. Transform mundane activities, make them meaningful and purposeful. Yes, I'll take that as the last question. So, with this emphasis on pressing and, and softening, how would one reconcile that with the fact that love is barely mentioned in the 
Um, it's, it says, Vahafta Hashem Elokecha, you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It says, Vahafta Lariacha Kamocha, love thy neighbor as thyself. The Torah says that even when you see your enemy's um, uh, donkey, you know, um, straining under its load, help him out, there are uh, multiple, multiple examples of that. All right, folks, uh, that's our time. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I have enjoyed hanging out with you. Thank you very much. All the best, and, and enjoy the rest, and it's wonderful for us here in Atlanta to uh, host you here in the great preach state of Georgia. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.